Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. For those of you that have been following the show for a while, you know that the main focus has been on the famous surgeons of history, with the notable exceptions of Sister Mary Joseph in Episode 9, Florence Nightingale in Episode 16, and Vivian Thomas in Episode 32. Go back and check them out if you haven't already. But thanks to a listener's suggestion, I got to thinking about the people in the operating room whose role is to help the surgeon, and without whom they could not operate. So let's talk about these unsung heroes in this episode of Legends of Surgery. From the beginning of recorded history of surgery, there's evidence of people assisting surgeons. In the years before anesthesia, their main role was to help to hold the patient still while the surgeon did their work. A carving on a tomb in ancient Egypt dating back to 2400 BCE shows a circumcision being performed with an assistant holding the patient's arms. As surgery developed in complexity, these assistants became ever more important to perform more invasive and major surgeries. And a number of different roles developed with different names and purposes. So let's explore that a bit more. The assistants given the task of holding patients during a procedure became known as handlers. One hospital in London, England recorded that a bell was rung to call the handlers to come to the operating theater to hold a patient down. Blindfolds and straps were sometimes used, as well as gags to muffle the patient's screams. As you might expect, a Pavlovian response to the spell developed, sending waves of fear through patients, knowing that either they were about to experience significant pain, or someone else was. Speaking of this, I came across the story of one particularly famous yet terrible operation that required the assistance of these handlers. This involved a patient named Hu Lu, a man from Hong Kong who traveled to London to have a tumor removed from his groin, which was organized by a British surgeon in Hong Kong, Dr. Thomas Coleridge. It was estimated to be 25 kilograms, or over 50 pounds. Hulu was a day laborer from the Dutch East India Company, who paid his passage to London, where he arrived in 1831. From what I can tell, the tumor is thought to be due to elephantiasis, or lymphatic filariasis. This is caused by parasitic worms, which are transmitted by mosquitoes, which block the drainage of fluid and cause limbs and genitals to swell up and enlarge. I guess they look a bit like elephant legs, hence the name. We'll be coming back to elephant-like features in a bit, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. Now, the operation to remove this tumor was to be performed by Charles Aston Key at Guy's Hospital to be assisted by Astley Cooper. Remember him from Podcast 69. As you can imagine, in an era where surgeries took place in operating theaters, a large crowd turned up for the spectacle, as many as 680 people by one estimate. The operation took 45 minutes, during which he lost copious amounts of blood to the point that students in the audience actually donated blood. Now, regardless whether due to blood loss or transfusion reaction, the patient died during the operation. His last words were translated as, I can bear no more, unloose me. The final tumor specimen weighed 26 kilograms, or 58 pounds. We can imagine that this operation was a challenge not only for the surgeons involved, but for the handlers responsible for holding the poor man down. Interestingly, the position of handler existed right up to the turn of the 20th century, and even longer in countries where anesthesia was not commonly available. Now, another fascinating role I learned about was that of the box boy or box man. This was a person employed by an individual surgeon to carry their surgical instruments in, well, a box. It's funny to think of now, but at the dawn of modern surgery, surgeons still purchased and used their own instruments. The box man was responsible for keeping the instruments clean and in good condition and sharpening the saws, knives, and scissors. They'd carry the instruments onto the ward so that the surgeon could perform more minor procedures at the bedside. 
Now for this next one, I'm going to call on my listeners from the UK to help me out, because the term seems to mean different things in different places and at different times. And that term is surgical dresser. In England, in the era of the surgeon's hall, when operating was taught by apprenticeship, the dresser filled a role considered different from the apprentice. Their job was to carry the dressings, hence the name I guess, change bandages, perform minor surgery, and care for accident cases as they came into the hospital. Now they had to pay a fee for this privilege. For example, at St. Thomas Hospital from at least 1750, the cost of a year's instruction as a dresser cost 50 pounds. Dresser ships, as they were known, became so popular at Guy's and St. Thomas's hospitals that in 1783 both hospitals required that one or more of the four dressers be an apprentice or apprentices, as individual surgeons collected fees from dressers, but the apprentice fees were shared amongst the surgeons. One of the more famous dressers at Guy's and St. Thomas's was the famous poet John Keats, who paid 25 pounds and four shillings to register himself as a surgical dresser for 12 months, starting in March of 1816. His duties were described by one source to include attending rounds with the surgeon, taking notes of patients and operations, and carrying the plaster box. He was also to take turns being resident in the hospital a week at a time to act as house surgeon and perform minor surgeries during emergencies. It would seem to me that this role might be described somewhere between a medical student on a surgical rotation and an intern, and my understanding is that in the UK, the former are sometimes still referred to as dressers, but please feel free to correct me. Okay, let's move on to one of my favorite terms and probably the most relevant historical role in the development of the surgical technologist, that of the beetle. The word is thought to have come from the Latin word bedellus, meaning messenger. Originally, beetles were town criers and were also employed in the parish workhouses and hospitals. Part of their role was to clear the streets of London of beggars and the sick. The healthy beggars were sent to a correctional facility and the sick to St. Thomas or Bard's hospitals. But basically, they were the earliest forms of ambulance men, with a splash of policemen in there too. Eventually, the surgical beetle, to distinguish from the other types, was created to work in the OR. One of the most famous beetles was a man named Josiah Rampley, often referred to as the Grand Old Man of the London Hospital. He was associated with their operating theater beginning in 1871 and lasting for 30 years. Rampley started out as a post-mortem porter in or around 1868 or 9, working for the pathologist Dr. Henry Gowan Sutton. After two years on the job, he was offered the post of theater assistant, or surgical beetle, but was required to also fulfill his duties as a post-mortem assistant. In his early days in the OR, before electric cautery was invented, I'll see Podcast 7 for more on that, one of his responsibilities was to keep the iron red-hot, just in case it was needed to stop a bleed. He also had to ensure that the ice was readily available, which followed the cauterization of a vessel. One of the junior surgeons he worked with would go on to great fame, Dr. Frederick Treves. He was briefly mentioned in episode 58 on the appendix, but let's go into some greater detail now. So Frederick Treves was born on February 15, 1853 in Dorset County, England. He trained in surgery at the London Hospital and the wonderfully named Royal National Hospital for Scrofula, which would later be known as the Royal Sea Bathing Hospital, and would return as assistant surgeon in September of 1879. Treves became a full surgeon there in 1884 at the age of 31. The one area of interest was peritiflitis, the term used for the as-yet-not-fully-understood condition that we now know as appendicitis. Now see Podcast 58 on that. Despite his growing success and fame as a surgeon, Treves left the London Hospital in 1898 at the age of 45 to attend to his growing and successful private practice. This was soon interrupted, however, by the outbreak of the Boer War in South Africa. 
Trees volunteered to serve as consulting surgeon, and he played a significant role in updating the care of the wounded in battle, which would have lasting implications in Great Britain's later wars. He wrote an account of his experiences under the title, The Tale of a Field Hospital, and apparently he took some breathtaking photos of the Veld, which are the open grasslands of South Africa, during the war. I'll try to find some and post them on Twitter. Upon his return to England, Treves was appointed Surgeon Extraordinary to Queen Victoria in 1900, and made Companion of the Most Honorable Order of the Bath, and Knight Commander of the Royal Victorian Order, and later Knight Grand Cross of the Royal Victorian Order. Some great titles there. During his life, Treves had two very famous patients. The first was Edward VII, soon to be King of England. On June 24, 1902, two days before his coronation, Edward became acutely ill. The Treves was called in, and after consulting with Lister and Thomas Smith, he operated to drain the abscess. Now the king protested, saying, quote, I must go to the abbey, end quote. And Treves replied, quote, Then, sire, you will go as a corpse, end quote. Edward allowed him to operate and made a full recovery and was later crowned on August 9th. The other famous patient was Joseph Carey Merrick, whom you may be more familiar with as the Elephant Man. Treves and Merrick crossed paths in 1884 when Merrick was being exhibited at a freak show in a shop across the street from the London Hospital. Upon hearing about him, Treves paid a shilling for a private viewing and then brought him to the hospital for examination. Now, their initial meeting was not overly positive, with Treves describing Merrick as, quote, the most disgusting specimen of humanity that I've ever seen, end quote. Seems a bit harsh. Now, later on, following a disastrous tour of Europe, where his manager stole his life savings, Merrick returned to London and showed the card that Treves had given him at their first meeting to the police, as his speech by this point was practically unintelligible. He was brought into the London hospital where Treves arranged for him to be given a vacant bed. He wound up staying there for nearly four years, during which the two men developed a close friendship. Following his death, Treves dissected Merrick's body, and he would later publish an account entitled The Elephant Man and Other Reminiscences. Now, we've taken a rather major detour, but there's one more thing before getting back to the main road. Now, the cause of the elephant man's deformities has been something of a mystery for over a century, with a number of possible diagnoses suggested. Before we delve into that, let's take a closer look at his condition. Although seemingly normal at birth, Merrick began to develop a large number of growths on his body as a child, which continued to grow in size and number throughout his life, making it difficult to speak, walk, and even sleep, and in fact, he actually slept with his head on his knees to support the weight of it. Trees described his condition as being primarily dermatological and musculoskeletal in nature. His skin had increased fat underneath it, it hung in large folds on his body and became thickened and discolored, which likely accounted for his nickname, as it looked like the skin of an elephant. His bones were also deformed, involving his spine, right arm, both legs, and skull, which was enlarged, asymmetrical, and had bony outgrowths. Go ahead and Google an image right now. I'll wait. See? His deformities were significant. The first to postulate an explanation was his own mother. During pregnancy, she had been knocked down by an elephant at a fairground. At the time, the idea of maternal impression, where an emotional stimulus to the mother could influence the development of the fetus, was still pretty popular. One of the earliest medical theories was that the elephant man suffered from von Recklinghausen's disease, also known as neurofibromatosis. However, this wasn't a great fit, and the search continued. In 1986, two Canadian researchers, Tibbles and Cohen, suggested Proteus syndrome, a relatively new syndrome first described just seven years earlier, coincidentally by one of the researchers. 
This was a condition with a wide range of presentations and consisted of sporadic, meaning not inherited, growths of hamartomatous lesions, which are benign growths of tissues, and which progresses throughout life. Now, given the incidence of less than one in a million, it's hard to compare to other cases. Now, FYI, it's called Proteus syndrome for the Greek sea god Proteus, who could change shape. This is also where the adjective protean comes from, meaning be able to change easily or frequently. Now you know. Anyways, recently a specific gene mutation has been identified for Proteus syndrome. Unfortunately, we cannot test the elephant man's tissue to confirm this because the pathology lab that had stored his skin samples was hit by a bomb during World War II. And so the mystery lives on. So let's get back to Rampley. Now, he was so dedicated to the London hospital that he never married and was perpetually on call throughout his service, attending nearly 40,000 operations. The Rampley sponge holding forceps and needle holder are named for him. At his farewell dinner upon retirement on December 12, 1900, Frederick Treves gave a speech on ramps, as he was affectionately known, covering his contributions to the hospital and the love and respect he'd earned over his years of service. And just to tie up another loose end, Treves himself retired to Lake Geneva in Switzerland, where he died on December 7, 1923. And we mustn't forget the anatomical structure that bears his name, the bloodless fold of Treves. Also known as the ileocecal fold, it's a fold of peritoneum between the ileum and cecum, the site of the base of the appendix. Its significance is as an anatomical landmark, and probably to trip up medical students and residents that don't know about it. Okay, so back to the history of surgical technologists. While surgical beetles are their predecessors, they're more directly traced back to the World Wars. Before the First World War, operating theaters were considered to be, quote, not a nice place for a lady to work, end quote, as one source put it, although the first record of a theater sister is at St. Thomas's in 1893. Now, the thinking was that women working in such a bloody and cruel environment would not be able to cope with the stress, the blood, and the heavy workload. But as thousands of casualties were evacuated to the UK from the field hospitals of Europe during the First World War, the English surgical wings were pressed to keep up with the deluge of the wounded. Now, as many of the box boys and surgical beetles had volunteered, or were recruited into the armed forces to serve in the field surgical teams, female nurses were recruited to work in the operating theaters to fill the gaps. And when the war ended, the returning soldiers found that they had been replaced, and found it hard to return to their old jobs in the OR. Now by this time, too, the post of surgical beetle was starting to disappear, and in fact, they were hired as porters, moving patients, but interestingly, were still called beetles up until the early 1970s. Nurses now held most of the positions in the operating theaters, and the box boys, beetles, and surgical assistants were no longer needed. The Second World War again depleted the staffs of ORs, but now the military recognized the need for trained help to work with surgeons in the field. The U.S. Army used medics to work directly under the supervision of the surgeon, creating the first role of a theater technician. In the U.S. Navy, nurses were not allowed on the battlefield or in combat ships, and so medical corpsmen were also trained to work in the ORs. In 1939, Dr. Thomas Perrin Jr., the U.S. Surgeon General, proposed the Protective Mobilization Plan, which pushed for the training of enlisted medical and surgical technicians. The plan was to establish schools at the Army Medical Center and four other general hospitals for the formal education of surgical technologists, as prior to this they were just trained on the job. By 1941, the first school was in session. By July of 1942, 410 students were enrolled. They were trained to assist surgeons as well as administer anesthesia, prepare instruments, aid in clamping and retraction intraoperatively, 
and the closure of surgical incisions, and they were known as operating room technicians. Following the war, these military medical technicians that had worked in the operating theaters and learned on the job wanted to continue to use their skills in civilian life. And while not immediately successful, following the Korean War, many of the military men were able to find work to make up for the severe shortage of operating room nurses that many hospitals were experiencing. And these men who had received training to aid military surgeons on the battlefield were now given positions in hospitals to make up for this shortage. But the profession was not yet organized into a cohesive group. That began to change in 1967 when the Association of Perioperative Registered Nurses published a book entitled Teaching the Operating Room Technician. The next year, the AORN, or Association of Operating Room Nurses, created the AORT, Association of Operating Room Technicians. By 1970, the first certification examination was given to gain the title of Certified Operating Room Technician. And by 1972, the American Medical Association formally approved an educational program for the OR technician. In 1978, the Association of Operating Room Technicians changed its name to what we now know it as the Association of Surgical Technologists. In the UK, there's the College of Operating Department Practitioners. And I'm curious as to how other different countries approach this too. Now here in Canada, the surgical technologist role doesn't really exist outside of the military, although physician assistants are starting to appear in ORs. Now the role next to the surgeon has been held by many over the years. Other surgeons, surgical beetles, nurses, and the newer professions known by many names, including surgical technologist, scrub, scrub tech, surgical technician, operating room technician, etc. But regardless of title, the role provided by the surgeon's right or left-hand person is one crucial to the success of many surgeries and one that should not only be recognized, but celebrated. That wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. The next time we'll cover another listener-suggested topic, the history of Talapes equinovarus, also commonly known as clubfoot. This has a long and fascinating history, both in the treatment of it and its cultural significance. Should make for a fun story. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download episodes. Leave a comment there. Or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends. Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. And as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.